Hello listeners, welcome back to the Founders Club podcast, season two. In this episode, I had the honor to interview Sean Ellis, who helped to bring five companies to market as VP of marketing growth that went on to exceed billion dollar valuations. Companies such as Dropbox, LogMeIn, Eventbrite, Uproar, and Lookout, in addition to launching and selling two businesses as founder and CEO, maybe of a website that you've probably heard about, which is growthhackers.com and another company called Qualaro. Sean is also author of Hacking Growth, a well-renomated book known in the industry, which has been published in 16 languages. Moreover, he is the co-creator of gopractice.io, host of the Breakout Growth Podcast, keynote speaker, and he runs workshops around the world to help teams align around a cross-functional approach to growth he calls growth hacking, a term he coined in 2010, which we talk about in the podcast. Sean has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, maybe you heard about it, Wired, Fast Company, Inc., and newspapers around the world, as well as on MSNBC. Before we dive deep in our interview, just a small announcement. Now you can become a Patreon of this podcast, and as a member, you will receive exclusive content, community access, behind-the-scene updates, and the pride of fueling the work that matters to you. So, go in the link on the show notes and make your small donation and become a patron of the Founders Club podcast. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. Today, my guest is Sean Addis, author of Hacking Growth and uh, co-creator of gopractice.io. Hello, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Giorgio. It's, uh, it's great to be on. I'm delighted to, to have you actually on the podcast because I've been following your work for three years around, something like that. And I want to start with a short story of how I came to, to know about Sean Ellis and uh, about your book, Hacking sure. Growth. It was, I think it was around 2018 and I was having uh, my first uh, startup experience in Shanghai working at the time at what it was, uh, what we call it Dugora, which is an app to help international students to learn Mandarin in China. And one day our, uh, CEO came to the office and he, he brought this, uh, this interesting book called Hacking Growth. And that was a very, obviously I gave it a chance. I was like, okay, that's a good learning opportunity. Let's give it a try. And obviously for me, it was a very uh, interesting learning experience and moment because I had the, the theoretical side, which is your book, and then the practical where I had to, I could had a chance to implement that uh, that learning. So mm -hmm. my first question that I want to start with, what was the original story uh, that, of the term growth hacker, growth hacking, how you came up with it? Yeah, so it was actually this past July was the 10th year anniversary of coming up with the term. So um, it's been around now for, for uh, over 10 years. And it was something that I you know, I, I, a lot of my experience actually started in Europe. So I um, helped to launch two startups out of Europe, out of Budapest. And then I was on the East Coast. So I was in 
New York City and Boston. So I actually didn't move to Silicon Valley until 2000, uh, late 2007. And so when I got there, most, most of the learning that I had around marketing and growth was, was kind of self-taught. You know, I did, I, I did a bit of classes over the years. Like, you know, when I was in New York, I took at New York University, picked up a course on, on marketing and at Harvard picked up a course when I was in, in Boston. But really the truth was that most, most of it was from, from just my own uh, trying to grow companies. And so I'd been, been growing kind of a game company first and then logged me in was the, the second company. And so I kind of developed my own approach to growth that was pretty different than a lot of people. But when I moved to Silicon Valley, I saw that there were some companies like Facebook um, and LinkedIn and Twitter that were, were taking a very similar approach to what I had done. And so I, I, there, there was this really effective approach to growth. And then at the same time, I had a bunch of founders asking me to get involved with their companies and they would always be asking things like, I want someone to help us build awareness. And um, I would be like, man, the average person sees 3,000 advertisements a day. You think on a little tiny startup budget, you're going to be able to build some kind of awareness. Yeah. I didn't tell them that, but that was what was going through my head where I knew in my experience that, you know, to, to build a sustainably growing company, you had to focus on customer acquisition and delivering experiences and if you get enough people to enough great experiences, you could actually build a, a pretty fast growing company. And so. And, that, and that's actually where, where I came uh, aware of the famous uh, funnel, the RR funnel. Yeah. Funnel. <laughs> right. Right. In fact, what's kind of funny with that was in, I think in 2008, I, was invited to speak at a conference and it was, I was invited by uh, Dave McClure who, who kind of invented that R funnel. And I remember the week before I had written a blog post saying, why are marketers so protective of their crappy marketing ideas? Um, you know, we, we should all be more open and just share what works and kind of learn together and get smarter. And then the next week I came across a, a blog post by, by Dave McClure and I was like, oh my gosh, this person shares even more than I do. And so I just, you know, I sent him a note and praised him on it. And then, then we got to know each other and he had invited me to this conference. But anyway, so what I, you know, back to the name growth hacking and where that came from, when I had, at this point, I'd been working at companies for, for short stints, like six months, bringing them to market. And a lot of my compensation was stock in the company. And so I had just finished with Dropbox and Eventbrite and I now was trying to hire my replacement. And what I found is that so many of the resumes were, they looked like a, a marketing 101 book of, you know, the way marketing's always been done, but not really taking advantage of the, of, of the internet with all the data and testing that you can do. And so I just realized that, you know, that, I need to redefine how do you effectively grow a company? And so I, I ended up uh, meeting with a couple of friends and just saying, you know, there's these companies that are taking a really effective approach to growth. And then there's everyone else. I think we need to stop calling it marketing and we need to, we need to call it something else because it extends beyond marketing. It goes, you know, deep into the funnel. It's, you know, things like engagement and, and retention and, 
you know, revenue, like different, you know, the whole R funnel, like all these things that we can do to drive growth. And so that's where over a couple of drinks, we finally said, you know, growth hacking seems like it would be a good name for this. And so I wrote a, a blog post um, that said, you know, hire, what did I say? Hire, hire a growth hacker for your startup and um, laid out what they should do. And, um, and, and so that was, that was 2010, but it was really pretty quiet for a couple of years. And then, and then I think it was 2012 when Andrew Chen, um, you know, really popular blogger and, and now venture capitalist, mm-hmm. you know, basically wrote a blog post that I think he called it, uh, growth hacker is the new vice president of marketing. And, um, he had, you know, 10 times the followers that I did. And so it or probably more than that even. So it kind of, it really built momentum after that and, you know, pretty, I think within, within, you know, a few months, there was thousands of job listings for growth hackers and it really, yeah, it took off from there. Yeah. That's so interesting. And also, also you mentioned that, uh, during this, uh, time, I'm curious to know what actually guys you were drinking when you came up with the name. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't have remembered, but one of the guys I was with always says mint juleps, which I don't even know what the heck a mint julep is, so. <laughs> But I'll I'll uh, I'll take his word for it. We were drinking mint juleps. <laughs> so over this uh, period of time, you also uh, developed extensive experience, and you helped uh, to bring five companies to market as a VP of marketing growth. Uh-huh. Uh, see the one billion dollar evaluation. Those companies like Dropbox, LinkedIn, Eventbrite, and so on. So yeah. what I wanted to ask you, because I'll be giving your experience, when is the right time to implement a a growth, uh, a, gr- a growth hacking team, or at least as a CEO or a founder to start to think about uh, growth hacking strategies? Yeah, so, you know, I, mean, I, I think a lot of the time when I was bringing these companies to market, I was, um, you know, I was, I was guessing as I was going through it, you know, there wasn't really a, a book that laid out, answered that question necessarily. And so, you know, all, all I could rely on was my own experience. And turns out that my experience was pretty flawed because I got really lucky. I, it turned out that the, like the first, the, the first two companies for sure, but probably five of the first six companies I worked on had what we now today call product market fit. But, you know, so, so for me, like the game plan is you just, you go to any company, you do these things and they take off. But I realized that, um, that, you know, you have to, you have to actually have a product that people really like once they try it. And, and if they like it and they keep using it and they tell people about it, then you can build momentum over time. And so I didn't really appreciate the power of product market fit until, until I didn't have it. And then, and then realized how important it was. So, um, yeah, that, that would be the time you, you want to make sure that, um, you know, the, the path to product market fit could be, could be many years or it could be like in the case with the companies that I initially worked with most of them, the very first thing we built, the market loved. And so we just, we just got lucky with that. But um, so that's, you want to make sure that you have, you have strong retention for the people who, who try the product or at least, you know, enough of the people who try the product. And then I also have another way to, to gauge product market fit, which is I ask users on the product how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And 
I'm trying to find those people who say they would be very disappointed without the product. And if I really study those people and I attract those people and I bring them to the right experience with the product, then, then I, can, I can really build a sustainable growth engine over time of acquiring those types of people. Right. So that's like kind of like a quantitative and qualitative way to measure uh, yeah. of, uh, product market. I remember something I did when I, when I came across uh, one of your blog posts that you mentioned, how you can measure uh, product market fit, ask this question to your existing users. And I remember I had this call with one of our users who purchased uh, a subscription to our product, which at the time was uh, this uh, language, uh, Mandarin language learning app. And I'd ask him, how, how would you feel uh, if you could no longer use uh, this app to learn Mandarin? And I give him the four, <laughs> the four <laughs> options, the three and four options, I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and he actually replied, I'll, I'll, he's a French guy, I remember. He's actually replied, I'll feel really, pissed off if I could no longer, could not use longer your product. That's like, great. Yeah. Hey, interesting going on here and with this product, obviously it, you, what I learned later on is that is you don't have to ask only 10 or 20 users. You have to ask at least a few hundred of them. Yeah. But in the beginning, I mean, in the beginning you want one, you want one user that says, Oh my God, I love this. And you know, for a lot of businesses, it's really hard to find even one user and then, and then you want two and then 10 and then 50 and then hundred. And, you know, and over time you're, you're getting to a thousand super passionate customers. If you can study those customers and learn everything about them, they probably can show you the way to get to a million customers and then to 10 million. And so it's, it's really, you know, and I think that's the biggest piece that kind of goes beyond at least marketing as, as most, technology companies were doing it, you know, kind of before, before the introduction of growth hacking and kind of taking the scientific approach to it, you know, most of them just sort of said, all right, I, if the, if it's B2B, I do lead gen, I gotta, I gotta generate enough qualified leads. And you know, if it's B2C, I do signups, I gotta get enough people to sign up for this product. And if they don't use it, it's because the product team didn't do a good job. And so they need to figure out how to do their job. But, you know, and it's, it kind of became this pretty like isolated, you know, siloed way of building a business. But the, but the fastest growing companies, they're, they're just so much more united around who are the right people? What's the right experience we need to give them? How do we figure out the right metrics to focus on? And how do, how do we build this machine that, that, that creates a lot of momentum over time and, it's uh, it's it's a lot harder to um, to to kill that machine and and to have it crash if if you have a bunch of passionate customers who absolutely love what you've built. Right. So market product feed though it's just part of it. There are some mm -hmm. other elements that come uh, sure. with uh, with implementing a growth hacking team and scaling the product. And I remember. Uh, one or two other elements, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, one was a language market fit and another was like channel market fit. So you have to nail down those two other elements, especially those it's, it's for product marketing managers out there. Uh, would you like to talk more about that? What do you mean by these two other elements? Sure. You know, and I'm going to even take a little bit of a step backwards and just, just say that, um, 
you know, early on in the business, it's you're, you're doing this search and you're, you're, you have to answer a bunch of questions and, and, and in a sense, you're almost like a private investigator trying to, trying to figure out some things. And you're trying to get to the point where, where you can just pour fuel on the fire and really grow the business. And so, you know, the, the product market fit and language market fit kind of, kind of go together. Like it, they're, I'm trying to avoid using the word fit again, but they kind of fit together as important elements of, of growth. But um, it's because, so product market, I'll give you an example. I had one company who I, I went into that business and I ran that question of how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And I'd already committed to working with this company for six months. I asked the question and I was, I was hoping to get somewhere close to the 40% of the people saying I'd be very disappointed. That's what I saw in other fast growing companies, but it came back and it was only 7% of the people said I would be very disappointed without this, this product. And I was like, Oh crap. Why did I not ask this question before I committed to six months, but okay, I'm here. So I'm going to make the most of it. So I basically studied those 7% and tried to really understand how were they using the product? What was the key benefit that they were getting? And so this takes me to the language market fit, which that's why I said it's kind of an, an element of product market fit. Once I studied those people, I realized that they had, they had a, like a really unique focus in how they were using the product compared to the rest of the people. And so when I understood the benefit of that usage and I changed the messaging to, to highlight that benefit, and we also changed the onboarding so that not only did we set a promise, but we made it so that you could experience that promise really quickly. So we, we took away everything that was unrelated to that, that promise. And then we brought the next, you know, big group of people in and surveyed them. So all of this was in two weeks. So two weeks later, we surveyed the next group of people who came in and just by changing the messaging, focusing on what the product was truly great at, according to these passionate people and changing how they got into the product, the next group was 40%. And then we continued to understand and, and iterate. Six months later, it was up to 60% of people said, I would be very disappointed if I could no longer use this, this product. And um, I think it was two or three years later that they, uh, the press said that they raised money at a $1 billion valuation. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think if you, if you, you know, don't figure out, you know, it's, it's, it's a guess in the beginning. That's why I was saying it's, you're kind of the search. You, you have ideas of what you think the market needs. You build it. Sometimes the market comes back and says, oh my gosh, this is great, which is kind of what happened with Dropbox or, or LogMeIn, maybe less of an extent. We had to do a bit of tweaking to some things. But, um, and, then, and then, you know, more often than not, you build it and the market says, I don't care. And then, so then you have to like, keep, keep iterating, but part of like making them care is, is essentially figuring out what's the right language to describe what I've done. And it's not just you guessing at different languages. It's, it's, even if you have a really inefficient conversion funnel, some people are going to get to the right experience with the product. And so understanding the people who get to that experience, they love the product, then, then figuring out, okay, how do I, how do I, create a machine that creates more of these people. Now I have the right, the right piece that I can act now actually go out and grow. 
And then the last piece is, okay, the channel market fit. Now, now I have to figure out what are the efficient ways to acquire these people. And that's, again, another search. You're, you're searching for the efficient ways. But I'll give you an, an example from Log Me In, where, where, again, this is all interdependent. It fits together so well. So at Log Me In, I, I was still very siloed in my approach at Log Me In because that's kind of what I had permission to do. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I went out and I, I tried to build channels and um, we raised some pretty good money. Our, our CEO had already taken one company public. So he had confidence of investors. They, they put in $10 million. And so he said to me as the marketer, okay, we, we raise all this money. We have to spend it and we have to spend it well. So go out and find some ways to acquire users for this product. And I tried everything I could think of, had a team around me of a couple other people, and we, we tried everything. We could only get it to about $10,000 a month in spending um, where, where we had a profitable return on the, that spend, and we just couldn't come up with anything else. And so most people would say, okay, well, you just don't have a very good marketing team. They're just not creative enough. They're not trying hard enough. But I, I looked at the data and realized that you know, for every hundred people that I got to sign up for this product, only, gosh, what was the number? Five, five people would actually use the product one time. So 95 people signed up and gave up before they used the product. Is that a marketing problem or is that a product problem? Wow. You know, if you ask the product team, they'd say it's a marketing problem because you're getting the wrong people and, and you're not doing a good job of getting them excited. If you ask the the marketing team, they'll say, oh, the product team, they just made this product too hard to use. But the, but the problem is it's an us problem. You know, the, the reality is it's an us problem. It's both a product and a marketing problem, and it's a company problem. So I shared that data with the CEO and said, I know you want me to be able to spend $100,000 a month. It's going to be really hard until we fix this. I didn't tell him what the solution was. I just said, we, 95% of the people who sign up never use the product. And I was hoping maybe he would get one person from the product team to work with me to try to address the, the issue. But it turned out that he, he looked at that data and he said, okay, I want you to stop trying to find new marketing channels. Just the ones that are working, let's keep them going. And he said to the product team, I want you to stop building the product. I want you to stop trying to add new features and you've got a roadmap. Just put it on pause for now. Marketing and product are going to come together. and." We might as well bring in the designers and the engineers and everyone's going to come together and try to solve this sign up to usage problem. And so that's where we then took a, a, a scientific approach that we call growth hacking today, where it was, we came up with ideas and, and did a lot of research. So surveys and, and usability tests and just came up with ideas of what, why people weren't converting and then, and then prioritize those ideas, test those ideas. So probably um, you know, every week did a handful of tests based on what we were learning. And within three or four months, we improved the sign up to usage rate to 50%. So now that's still sounds pretty bad. Half the people who sign up never use the product once, but that's a thousand percent improvement in the sign up to usage rate. So from five people to 50, that's a thousand percent improvement. So now when I went back and tried the same marketing channels, they, you know, all these channels where, you know, I put in 
a dollar and I only get 50 cents back, I'm going to cancel, you know, I'm not spending any money there. Now I put in a dollar, I get $5 back from those channels. So those channels actually ended up scaling, not just to the hundred thousand, they scaled to $1 million a month we could spend with a three month payback on. So it was, we had all the money back after three months. And then more importantly, you had all these thousands and thousands of people who are having a great experience with the product every day. Now they start telling their friends about this amazing free way to access your computer and, you know, control it. And, you know, they're, they're seeing on television radio that there's another product that charges $20 a month to do this. And with log me in, you can do it for free. So the word of mouth spread like crazy. And so it was, uh, 80% of the new people who signed up actually came in through word of mouth. And so not surprisingly, that was, you know, it went from like not growing at all to rocket ship. And, and by the time I left, you know, a few years later, I think we had a hundred million devices that had our software on there, active devices connected into our data center. Yeah. Generating word of mouth, it's one of those milestones. It's so hard to accomplish, but if you manage to uh, enable your users or to give so much value to your users that they spontaneously will tell to their friends, mm -hmm. it's, it's so important. And it goes maybe back to also the, the, the new user experience that someone who maybe signs up to try your product, if they cannot, I think I was listening an interview of Chamat Palipatia, if I'm yeah. probably didn't pronounce correctly. And he I don't know if even he knows how to pronounce his name. <laughs> <laughs> and he says that if, if someone who signs up to try your product and he doesn't, um, doesn't grasp or doesn't get value within six seconds of being on your product, then you have to do whatever it takes to improve that new user experience. Otherwise, yeah. you will not manage to to convert uh, yeah. paying customers and they will not understand what is the value of this product. Right. So and speed to value is a huge lever for, for yeah. accelerating growth. That was, that was one of the struggles that um, we had in our, my previous uh, experience at the Dugora because the product was intrinsically a little bit difficult. So because just to explain what was the product, we enabled teachers to do a online lesson with the student and then the, uh, our algorithm basically will process the, the lesson and generate the personalized exercises based on what the teacher was teaching during the, the, the video call. And, right. and that's when actually uh, the user the student will take more value because you have first the teacher and then you have the content which is personalized to you. And we cannot give that before you have to actually do the lesson with the teacher. And we had yeah. so, so much struggle to communicate not much to communicate, but to make students to experience this value because it's not six seconds. It took like, I know. Yeah, it was delayed, uh, right. Yeah, it's like delay in experience the, the full value of the product itself. So we try some different tests. Okay, we say, okay, why if, what if we send a preview before the lesson mm -hmm. itself start with some content, language content according, but it's difficult because if you don't know the level of the student or what are his learning needs, it's kind of like yeah. challenging to give him the right content. And yeah. I, I, think, I think people just lose touch of what that first user experience is like on their product because a lot of people will go back and try their and use their product on a regular basis, but they only have one first time experience. And so they don't, they don't sign up and use on a regular basis. So it's really easy to, to lose connection with that. I was, 
doing my last in-person workshop was in, uh, in February in Europe. I took a company that, you know, has, has built a super successful product, but they, they still had a really tough first user experience on the product. And, um, I remember I, in, in the workshop, I took screenshots of every single step that I went through before I could actually get to my aha moment of that, of that value. And by the time that I finished showing the screenshots of every one of the steps that I went through, the team spontaneously broke out into applause that I was able to keep going to, to through that pain. And so, and so, you know, immediately once we laid it all out, we, we, we immediately started to be able to come up with a lot of ideas of how can we, how can we cut this and add, you know, how, how do we, how do we move that great experience up to the beginning and um, you know, and, and following the workshop, they, they were able to accelerate growth, quite a bit because, you know, I mean, they, they kind of got to the fundamentals of what truly drives growth. And then they're a company that was spending a lot on television advertising and other places before that. And all of that is constrained by your ability to quickly get people to a valuable experience so that you can keep them and that they'll tell other people about it. Right. Uh, lately you focus a lot on, uh, I noticed you focus a lot on the ad tech space. On your podcast, for instance, you had several founders and executives that work on different problems which concern education. How do you see this industry evolving, especially now, given the unprecedented change due to COVID? Um, yeah, so, so my podcast is really about... First of all, I'm trying to... I'm, I'm always trying to learn because, you know, it's... Uh, I, I definitely am not perfect at any of this stuff. There's, there's room for improvement on everything. And so I'm trying to talk to different people who are involved in growth at the fastest growing companies in the world. So I have a lot of independent metrics that I use to identify who's a really fast growing company. My last interview, I didn't really need these like private company metrics because they're actually they, they're the largest IPO of 2020, mm -hmm. a company called Zoom Info. And so I talked to their CEO. It was literally published like three or four days ago. And, um, and just studying how, you know, for him, it was really interesting because it was, he was the founder of the business. And so being able to go from the full journey from very early idea and all of the problems and issues that he faced to the point now where he's got a really big team going after the opportunity and, and now they're a $13 billion company. But, um, you know, there's just so many lessons in, in all of that. And I think what's, what's interesting for his business was that it's a sales led um, business, which makes it really usually really hard to, to use data to drive experimentation because salespeople always take a different approach. And so you don't have this kind of, it's a lot harder to experiment when there's too many variables. And if every salesperson is taking a different approach, you, you really can't learn anything, but he's, he's figured out how to really take a system a systematic approach to testing and learning in a sales driven approach that, that clearly has been very effective in growing that business. And so, um, yeah, I mean, every, every company that I've interviewed, it's, there's, there's so many great lessons in, in each one of them. So it's been a, it's been a good passion project. So Breakout Growth Podcast is the, like we've been, we've been doing it for about the same amount of time for the last year. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun learning journey for sure. 
Yeah, and you had two interesting guests. One from uh, Corsetta was an executive product. I yep. Think. And mm-hmm. another one was from the CEO from Teachable. Uh, yeah, that was before they got acquired too. So Teachable had a great acquisition following that interview. What is your main takeaway from the, the podcast and from more broadly from adding this podcast with them and more broadly from the, the industry, education industry? And uh, I, I like to pick your brain on that because you had an interesting conversation, probably also offline with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I, that I see with the truly successful companies where the person's like playing a key role in that successful company is is a level of being humble that you wouldn't expect you know you you think someone gets to a multi-billion dollar valuation company they they earn the right to be a bit arrogant and you know walk around with uh with some pride in what they've done but i think the reason that they've gotten to these great heights is that they they just they they are constantly looking at everything they're doing and realizing there's a better way to do it and trying to be systematic about finding what is that better way. And, um, you know, the more that it's a CEO, then it's about trying to build a culture and drive, you know, company-wide alignment that's all pulling in the same direction. And there's some, there's some good tools. I, I, I definitely find that most of the successful companies are using a North Star metric, for example. So clearly most of them have strong product market fit, not surprisingly, (laughs) as we talked about in the beginning, but then they have a North Star metric, which is really almost a quantification of that product market fit. So it's like, okay, product market fit means there's enough value that you can retain customers. And then how do I get a metric that tells me how much of that value that I'm delivering and usually product market fit is kind of you know that's core value of the whole business so every single person in that company plays some kind of a role in delivering that value and so if you can get all people focused on the same metric and and realizing what they can do to move that metric it's it's really powerful and so I see that pretty consistently across these fast-growing companies they may not call it a North Star metric but they they're acting on the principle of the North Star metric that is, you know, align, align the team around a value metric that if you're, if you're growing value over time, then, then you're going to, you're going to have sustainable growth that you're, that you're generating because you have people who are getting great experiences and telling and, and telling others and sticking to it. Is, is there a way, I think you came up with a way to identify your, uh, North Star metric within the company because sometimes maybe some people like let's say if there is a sales department they will say okay sales like how many sales generate per year or yeah. month could be our uh, North Star metric whereas uh, some other departments say no maybe it's because how many people use our product you know so what is yeah. the best way to came up and then identify your North Star metric yeah so I think it starts with identifying how do people get value from the product and so you know, if you take, you take Uber, for example. So I, I interviewed the original head of growth at Uber. I actually interviewed him at, at the uh, Growth Hackers Conference a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, he, he said the very first thing when he left being, being head of international growth at Facebook and went to Uber, very first thing he wanted to do was establish a North Star metric. So 
he sat down with the CEO and they just went through the process of, of like, how do people actually get value? Should we, should we optimize for app downloads? You know, well, there's lots of people that download apps and never use those apps. That's probably not a good metric for us. So same thing, signups, probably not a good metric for us. Um, number of people who take rides. That's better, you know. I mean, more, more riders on the platform is going to be really good, um, you know. But that we don't really, you know, it doesn't work if we don't have drivers. And so, so should, we, should we look at drivers? And basically, they went through this whole kind of like thing, and they finally said it's actually the number of rides. Every time that a ride is given in an Uber, a passenger got some value and a driver got some value. And so they then settled on weekly rides. And um, so it's, I think it's a, a somewhat of an iterative process. So what if you're wrong in, in it and, and you pick something like downloads? Um, if, if you're really optimizing for maximizing that metric, it could, it could steer you in the wrong direction. The, the chances are if you have a lot of downloads that that's, that's probably gonna be somewhat good for your growth. But then if you start incentivizing people to download the product and then they never use it, like over time you might, you might just, your team might kind of game that metric. But if the team is gaming people who get rides in Ubers, then, then, you know, and they do kind of game it. If you sort of look like there'll, there'll be incentives, like if you, your next 10 rides will be 30% off and you know, they, they kind of do some of those, but, but part of that then is trying to build the habit around it. And they just, you start to understand the whole engine for growing rides. And so you can increase the number of rides per person. You can, the more drivers you have, the faster people get picked up and the more convenient it becomes. And you start to really understand the engine that moves that metric. And so when I'm teaching a team, like in a growth uh, workshop, usually how to come up with a North star metric, um, you know, a lot of times it just helps to go through a lot of examples. So, you know, I explain why Facebook is daily active users, why Slack is daily active users. And, and just, I, I give some examples and then, then pretty quickly, you know, I'll, I'll get some ideas from the team and I'll tell them why this idea is good. This one's not. And then, and then, you know, ultimately it's a pretty, usually yeah. within like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, we can narrow in on one. But at the same time, I've had other companies where I didn't take a real active role in helping them come up with a metric and they'll debate it for six months and still not have a metric. And, and so the longer you wait to actually have that metric, the less you get the benefit of that tool that really aligns the entire team around driving growth, but growth based on more and more value delivered. So that's sustainable growth. Right. That's very interesting, the, the, the example you mentioned of Uber, because there are two kind of primary users that Uber has. On one side is the, the, the drivers, and the other yeah. side is the, the one, the people who are need for a ride. And, and that's like, when you have like such kind of platforms, you have to take into account not only one, one kind of user, but also the other user that have to... Yeah. I think this example reflects to some degree also Airbnb maybe or some other yep, platform. Sure. But, but interestingly, like weekly rides is also what you would have with like Lime scooters or Lime bikes. And so that's, not, that's, that's really, you know, the bike isn't getting benefit. So then it's really only about the riders, but it's, it's knowing what are the levers to get more rides. If we have bikes everywhere or we have scooters everywhere, we're more likely 
to someone will have the convenience to pick it up and ride. If there's five scooters in the city, then our rides are going to be way down. If there's, if there's hundreds of scooters, but no one has ever downloaded the app, it doesn't work. You know, so you, you really start to, to understand, you know, what are the, what are the things that are holding back growth of that North star metric? And, and then the goal becomes, how do I, how do I put a lot of energy behind that high leverage opportunity to accelerate the North star metric? Right. Um, there are many resources out there, such as books, one of the, the books, York, obviously, uh, video courses and, and many others. However, stepping from the theory to a practical level, uh, there is still a gap. So how can someone learn and become a growth hacker leader despite, uh, despite the industry he works in? Because uh, here I want to touch a little bit upon your latest uh, venture, uh, gopractice.io. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that I, yeah, so that there is kind of like, how do you teach this? Obviously, the best way to teach it is just to do it. And so, you know, like I, my best teacher over the last 20 or 30 years of, of doing this kind of stuff has been every time I'm in another experience, I, I learn something new and I get a better understanding of how to do things. And I constantly challenge myself to get better. Um, and, and that was part of the theory when we wrote the book was, okay, let's, let's try to get all of these lessons in this book so that people could really, you know, have it all in one place and have, have a guide as they're trying to execute better. And so my co-author um, spent years at Facebook. He's now on the Shopify team. He's, he's, he's a really talented growth person. He helped me launch and grow growth hackers. And, um, but I still kept getting the gripes from people who would read the book. There was two main things that were coming back with was, one, just creating the experiments, how, how to actually run the experiments, you know, like the, the, the actual building the muscle memory of experimentation was actually pretty hard. And then one of the things that made it really hard was that just because one person in the company read the book, if the rest of the company doesn't believe in testing, then, then they're not going to be able to do testing because, you know, maybe the marketer can test in marketing channels. That's, that's kind of how marketing channels work for most people now that they're running lots of testing. The power of this is testing across all of the growth levers, different teams control those levers. So the two things, so over the last couple of years, that's where I found workshops really help to get the team on the same page and kind of make it so that they could test, which then helped to drive the experience. But it's still, still the kind of trial and error of getting good at experimentation was really hard. You know, being able to really interpret data, find the opportunities, interpret data after you've run an experiment so that you know if it's statistically significant. All of those parts are another place where people struggle, where I personally have struggled. And so I came across a course um, that a guy had built on the Russian market, um, a former Facebook data scientist, Oleg Yakubenkov. And, um, he, he built a simulator. So kind of the same way you think of like a flight simulator, he built a simulator for launching and growing a business where you're actually running real queries in amplitude, making decisions around that and building and growing a product. And so when he introduced me to that, I was like, oh, you know, we, we need to, you know, tighten up that, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd come out with an English language version, but there was, there was, you know, a, lo a lot more that could be improved on it. So I partnered with him to improve the English language version. And, um, and now that's something that we, 
we launched maybe um maybe three or four weeks ago and um it's been it's been awesome yeah i mean we've we've had um hundreds of people sign up just in the last few weeks but um overall the course has had uh upwards of seven or eight thousand people uh sign up and go through it and again it's less i call it a course but it's really it's really you're going through a story you're immersed in the story of launching and growing and a mobile app and you're running queries on data that evolves so every update there's a new set of data that you're going in and learning what worked what didn't work you're learning how to run the surveys some answers are coming back you're getting that kind of qualitative quantitative view and by the time you get through really about a 12 week program if you're if you're spending a lot of time every day um you're you're going to be a world class growth person and um and then what what we're also doing uh that we just he had never really done this before is that we're we're doing like we're running it as a cohort so every week starting starting in a couple of weeks every week we'll have um actually it's next week um so starting next week uh oleg and i will be will be um essentially reviewing the chapters helping people talk about how to apply it in their unique business situation answering questions and so so really kind of building a community of people going through the the cohort and so it's uh i'm i'm excited because i know i know just working with oleg took my my learning to the next level i've heard a ton of feedback from other people and and so it's it's good to finally finally be able to be getting it out more aggressively across the english language uh speaking countries or the people in countries that speak english anyway <laughs> sounds like an exciting uh venture that you guys are launching uh, yeah it's, it's it's really cool and the last question i have uh for you what is the impact that you want to have as a founder so you know really what i'm trying to do i i had an opportunity to work across you know in individual companies but i think where i get the most uh excitement and fulfillment fulfillment is when i can help push the envelope on how to uh, sustainably grow a lot of different companies and 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 growing them in the right way and so there's a netflix special right now that that kind of villainizes growth hacking it's one of the top 10 shows on on netflix it's the social something um but uh you know they it, it's a better story to say okay it's all about manipulation and tricking people but the truth is that the best growth hack is making a product that people really need that solves a real problem for people and that and making that product really easy to use and so if you if you do those things you're going to be much more effective at driving growth long term in that business and so if i can provide tools to people who've built valuable products to solve real problems and help them accelerate sustainable growth then then i feel good about that um you know if if some of the things are abused by some companies that do uh do temporary things that like the the good news is that most of those companies go out of business anyway because at the end of the day if you're not really helping people people might use you once you might be able to trick them but but they're not going to use it sustainably so um yeah that's what gets me excited is uh continuing to push my own learning and then and then sharing that more broadly about how to take really great products and and accelerate growth for those products. That's a great way to have an impact in the industry. Shanelis, thank you very much for joining the Founders Club podcast. It was a blast and I totally enjoyed to have you on. Thanks Georgia, it's been fun being on. <laughs>